We're continuing our series called Too Much today. With uh, We're spending Sunday mornings talking about the principles that we learn from the book. We're spending Wednesday nights talking about the practices. We had a great time together this past Wednesday night. And what we're learning from the book is if you take the principles and you add to them the practices, you get what? You get real profit. That's the output of these things. Principles are all about attitudes. It's internal stuff. It's things that we have to get in our hearts and get in our minds because if we begin there with an internal change, it produces an external change. The result is a change on the outside. Last week, we looked at the principle of gratitude. Are we truly grateful for what God has given us? This week, we continue with the principle of contentment. Are we content with what God has given us. I think when I think of the word contentment, the image that comes to mind for me is always that of a sweet sleeping baby. And there's little Lizzie over there just looking so sweet and so content. And that to me is just the image of contentment. But babies, they don't always look like that, do they? Connor's a little discontent at the moment. You, you hear when a baby is discontent and when, when a baby is crying and when you have those moments where nothing seems to make them happy and you understand that, that a baby is also go, going through those kind of moments. And, and so I, having this image in my head of a content child, I, I wanted to ask a couple of our experts in babies around here, what does it take to make a baby content? And so I talked to Autumn Webb this week about, about Lincoln and what it takes to make a baby content. And Autumn said sometimes a full belly and a clean diaper, that's enough. Uh, but there are other times that Lincoln just cries. And he cries and cries because he doesn't want to sleep. Amy said she and John have a checklist. Is the, uh, is the diaper fresh? Is there any gas? And is the baby hungry? And if those three things have been taken care of, then maybe if she's still, if Lizzie's still a little unhappy, if she's discontent, maybe just some snuggle time. Maybe she just needs mommy. But what both ladies showed me is that we are not born content. Contentment is something we have to learn, even as children. And it gets harder the older you get. That list of three things that you do with Lizzie, you know, is the diaper clean? Is there any gas? And is she, is she full? That list is going to get longer and longer as she gets older. And she's 25, 35, 45, 55. Eventually, it goes back to just those three things, though. If you wait around long enough, you know, it'll, it'll go back to that. But in the meantime, you know, we, 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 we are discontent. And our discontent just continues to grow. If you've been reading through the book too much, on page 50, Derek Thompson, a, an economist, makes this observation. He says, over the past 100 years, Americans have turned yesterday's luxury goods into today's necessities. For example, in 1900, less than one out of 10 families had access to electricity or even owned a stove. In 1955, less than one out of 10 families owned a car. In 1930, less than one out of 10 families owned a clothes washer or a refrigerator. In 1945, less than one out of ten families had air conditioning or a clothes dryer. In 1960, less than one out of ten families owned a collar television or a dishwasher. In 1975, less than one out of ten families had a microwave. 
In 1990, less than one out of ten families had a mobile phone or internet access. And he concludes, today at least 90% of the country has a stove, electricity, car, fridge, clothes washer, air conditioning, collar TV, microwave, and cell phone. They make our lives better. They might even make us happier, but they are never enough. We are not born content. We see that from the inside of a caring mother. We also see it from our own overspending and our desire for luxuries. Contentment is something we have to learn. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul tells us. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 4 today, verses 10 through, 10 through 19. If you're using the Bibles there in the pews, it's on page 982, Philippians 4. Paul is writing this letter to the, to the Philippian church. It's a church that has supported his ministry. They have sent him money and they have sent him gifts. They've sent him food. Uh, Paul is writing this letter from prison. I mentioned a while back in another sermon, prison back then was not like prison today. You didn't get three hots and, and a cot. You, know? you, didn't, you weren't guaranteed to be fed. You didn't get medical care in prison back then. Any care that you received, any food you received, any medicine you received, came from your friends and family who would provide for you. A lot of people just got, for, got forgotten when they went to prison. So Paul is writing to express his thanks to the Philippians for what he has received from them during his imprisonment. We begin in verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord that I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the Gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my need once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. It's a fragrant offering. It's a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What Paul shows us here very simply is that we are not born content. It is an attitude that we learn and from that very simple principle, what we can see very obviously is that learned behavior begins in the mind. Read verse 11 carefully. Everything hinges on verse 11. Paul says, not that I am speaking of being in need for, and here it is, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul had to learn Contentment, it does not come naturally. Contentment is not an instinct that we're born with. Contentment is not genetic. You didn't inherit contentment from your parents. Uh, contentment is, is not a, an instinct. It's not a, a reflex where we 
Kind of like breathing that we are born content. You have to learn it. And what that tells us is, you may not be very good at it at first. It might be something that requires a lot of effort and a lot of practice. And it's something that we very likely may fail at before we get it right. The other thing that we learn from that is we have to decide to learn contentment. You have to make a commitment to contentment. I brought some examples with me. When I was 12 years old, I decided I wanted to learn how to ride one of these. I wanted to learn how to ride a unicycle when I was 12 years old. And my father, I went to my father and I said, Dad, I want a unicycle for my birthday. And my father had this philosophy, and maybe it's similar to your philosophy. My father's philosophy was this. You don't go near the water until you learn how to swim. Think about that for a minute. Let it sink in. You don't go near the water until you learn how to swim. How are you going to learn how to swim if you don't go near the water? Think about it. See? Huh? Anyway. He said, I'm not buying you one until you know how to ride one. So he borrowed a unicycle, and I pretty much demolished that thing <laughs> over the next couple of weeks. Now I hopped right up on it, and I took off. Just knew instantly how to ride a unicycle. No, it doesn't work that way. It took me about two weeks of trying and failing and getting back up and trying again and failing and falling and repeatedly until I finally took off and somehow made it out of the driveway. And that was all those years ago. And today, if I wanted to, I could hop up right now and I could just ride out of here on this. In theory, I could do that. We're not going to try it. I'm 49. That's a good way to hurt yourself. But that's, that's something that it took effort to learn how to do. That's probably going to fall over. We're just going to leave it there. How about this? I've shown you this before, right? Look at this. It's all natural. I just learned how... Well, mostly natural. I think I broke something over here. Weeks of practice. Weeks of throwing these things in the air until I finally got it somewhat down, by the way. But it didn't come naturally. A year ago this month, a year ago this month, I bought my first guitar. I'm a little hurt that the band has not asked me to play with them, but they have heard me play. Uh, so maybe that's it. I don't know. Uh, a year ago, I, I started playing guitar. I, I think I'm still pretty bad at it, but I'm better than someone who just started. You know, so that I take a lot of pleasure in that, that if someone started now, I'm actually better than them. I might even be able to teach them a thing or two. But what I'm showing you is that these things take practice. Learned behavior begins in the mind. It begins with a commitment, and you're likely going to fail before you succeed. How many of you have tried dieting? Anyone try to diet? Did you fail? Did you finally figure something out that worked for you? I, I hope you did, you know, but we fail the first few times because cheeseburgers are awesome and we like food and, you know, we don't know how to do portion control. What about budgeting? <laughs> budgeting something maybe you tried and you said it didn't work for me. Well, it failed because it's, you have to make a commitment to that. Some of you have quit smoking. And I think what it is with smoking is you don't so much learn to quit smoking as much as you relearn how not to smoke. Would that be maybe a, the thought? You have to relearn everything that you do when you make a commitment like that. But it requires a commitment. Uh, Titus, uh, Paul writes in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. I love this verse. Titus 2.11, Paul writes to his friend Titus and he says, 
For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Grace of God brings salvation. We get saved through the grace of God. Amen? It's not our effort. It's nothing that we do. The grace of God saves us. Then he goes on and says, it, the grace of God, teaches us to say no. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to worldly passions, to discontentment, and to live self-controlled, content, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You see that? It teaches us. It doesn't come naturally. Contentment does not come naturally. It takes the loving touch of a mother and a father when you're young, and it takes the presence of God's grace as we grow. Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. If you back up just a couple of verses, verse 8, Paul says there in verse 8, he gives them this this advice. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if anything is worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. Why? Because if you change the things that you think about, if you change the way that you think, you can change your behavior. You can change the way that you live. But it has to start with a commitment to the goal. A commitment to the process. I'm going to drop the clubs a few times. I'm going to fall off the unicycle a lot. And I'm going to hit a lot of bad chords before I get anything right on the guitar. But I'm going to keep practicing and keep working at it. And someday I'll be as good as you guys, maybe. But every time we mess up, we're going to try again. That's the commitment. And what we discover with time is that right thinking leads to right living. Right thinking leads to right living. Paul, in verse 11, tells us he has learned to be content. And then verse 12, he continues on and he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and Need. It's an interesting phrase there. I have learned the secret. Shh, it's a secret. I'll tell you a secret. It's the only time this phrase is used in the Bible. It's, if you've read the book, you understand that it's a phrase that is used of initiations, secret rituals and secret rites of initiation that you go through. How many of you have ever been initiated into a club or have you ever pledged a, a fraternity or You've gone through some initiation into a lodge or something, and you know there's all kinds of weird things that they make you do when you're being initiated. You have to go through these odd ceremonies, and you have to do this weird, sometimes strange and silly stuff. You know, But it's a bonding process that connects you with those who have gone on before. When I was a freshman in high school, and I started going out to Donna's house for, for youth group, we had to be initiated as freshmen into the youth group. And there were these horrible jokes that they would play on us. Most of them involved us getting our pants wet for some reason. I don't know exactly why. They'd pour water on us. They'd blindfold us and, and we, we'd get water poured on us. But there were these, these, these very humiliating and, and hilarious pranks that they would pull on us. And then we couldn't wait to do them to the next year's group of freshmen. We didn't tell them what was coming up, but we made sure that we got to do that to next year's crops of a crop of freshmen, it united us. It, it, it bonded us together. Early in the history of the church, there were rumors that Christians, these, these Christians had 
initiation rituals. If you joined the church, there was initiation, and they would secretly make you eat flesh, and they would make you drink blood. And, and people said, those people are weird. They're, they're eating flesh. They're drinking blood because they didn't understand what was happening at the table. Maybe they still don't understand what's happening at the table. And maybe we don't understand this secret that Paul's talking about either, the secret of contentment. Maybe we haven't understood the secret initiation of contentment as being a part of this new life that we want to live in Christ when we're putting our trust in Jesus and trusting Him for what He provides. What did Paul's initiation look like? Well, in verse 12, he talks about being hungry. He talks about being thirsty. He talks about physical suffering. Uh, you know, We know that Paul was persecuted. We know that Paul was imprisoned and, and so much more. But you know what else this secret initiation of Paul's involved? It involved joy. He writes more in this letter about joy than, than any other letter. He goes on and on about joy. Why? Because joy is the ability to see beyond those circumstances, to see beyond the pain and to trust God's presence and to know His purpose in your life and allow those things to change you. Right thinking leads to right living. That's what we're learning through the book too much. If we take the principles and we add to them the practices that we study on Wednesday nights, we produce real profit. What is real profit? We don't measure it in money. We don't measure it in wealth. We don't measure it in, in holdings and, and investments. Real profit is a good night's sleep because you're not worried about how you're going to pay your bills. Real profit is a marriage where you don't argue about money because you, you both are in agreement with how that money is going to be, going to be handled. Real profit is, is loving your job and loving your life. Wouldn't those things bring you joy? Of course they would. But it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you some skin in the game. It can't just be about ideas and thinking. We have to put them into practice, which is why we get together and talk about the practices on Wednesday night. We had 27 people with us this past Wednesday night. We had a wonderful time together uh, sharing and talking about the practices. And I hope what we see for all of us, as each one of us learns the secret of contentment. I hope what we see is that contentment becomes contagious. I think we're very aware that discontent can become contagious, aren't we? Discontent. We call it keeping up with the Joneses, right? Somebody else gets that new thing that you want and you want it too. And you covet that new thing, that new iPhone 7 that's coming out here pretty soon, you know, or whatever it is that you want, you know, you, 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 you covet that thing. And not only do you want what they've got, but you want one better. You want the bigger, the better, the faster, the, the more impressive one. It's keeping up with the Joneses. We are discontent and, and it breeds that discontent. But you understand in the same way, your contentment can become contagious. People around you can see that you are content with what you have. You model that for them. And you can change their lives. You can change the lives of your kids. You can change the lives of your, of your grandkids. You can change the lives of your friend. You can change the lives of people in church. Paul wraps up this paragraph with verse 13. Everybody loves verse 13. Yeah, I see, I see verse 13 everywhere. Everybody loves verse 13. You know it. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yeah, it's a great verse. Please hear it in context. Please hear it from the place 
in which it is written. Paul is not attempting to score a field goal. You know, he's not playing on the prison football team. You know, he's, he's not out there trying to store, score a field goal. He's not trying to run a marathon or an ultra marathon. He's not even trying to win a hot dog eating contest. Okay? He's trying to stay alive in prison, in prison where he has been beaten, where he's been sick, where he's hungry, where he's alone. And from that place, what does Paul write? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What does that mean to Paul in a place like that? What does it mean for us who aren't hungry, who aren't alone, who aren't sick, who aren't being beaten or in prison for our faith? It means we can learn to be content through Christ who gives us strength. It doesn't say I can do all things through my education and my intellect. It doesn't say I can do all things through my cash reserves and my bank account and the the holdings that I have. It doesn't say I can do all things through my friends and my accomplishments. No, it's not about the power of positive thinking. It's not about our own gratification. It's not about my own political positions, my political views. We can be satisfied in life with what God has given us through the strength that we receive from Jesus. That learned behavior begins in the mind. You make a decision to do it. It continues as you put the effort into living it out. And yeah, you're going to fail, but you're going to get right back up and you're going to try it again. And what you find is it doesn't just change your life, it changes the lives of the people who are watching you. Remember verse 8? We looked at it a moment ago. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Look at verse 9. Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, put these into practice and the God of peace will be with you. People are watching and they're learning and it changes them also. You notice how Paul wraps up this section in verse 19? He says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. How can he promise that? How can he make a promise like that? How can he be sure? Because he's lived it out. Because he's lived it out. Because he's modeled it for them. Because they saw it in his life. And they know that it's true. And they trusted God all the more because they saw it in Paul. I have a friend that I occasionally get together with and we play guitar together. I think you can call it that. He, uh, he has a, an amazing guitar. He inherited it from his grandfather. It's his grandpa's custom-made Gibson. I think it was made in 1953. And it is, it is beautiful. It is exquisite. It's amazing. He's let me play it once or twice, but it always makes me very nervous. It's this beautiful acoustic guitar. He, he had to have a custom-made case to fit it, and he takes care of it. I mean, every time we play, when he gets done, he takes this cloth out and he wipes it down really carefully and puts it away very gently. But he inherited it from his grandfather. And having inherited it from his grandfather, we have to, he loves to play his grandfather's songs. And so when we got together Tuesday night and played, we played a lot of Hank Williams that night. And uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, we didn't do a great job, but we, we did what we could. But it's important for him to stay connected with what he's inherited. 
And I'm always telling him, because every time he pulls that guitar out, it makes me nervous. I don't know what it's worth, but it just makes me nervous. And I say, put that thing away. You drive me nuts when you bring that guitar out. Put it back in the case, stick it in the closet, and go buy some cheap piece of junk like I did that you can learn on and you can bang it up and it won't matter, you know, and just just play that and, and keep that just for the good times. But it's important for him to, uh, to play it. He, uh, he's content to play his grandfather's guitar. I was thinking about that this week as I was working on this sermon because I thought there's something in that for us. Future generations are going to inherit something from us. It may not be money. It may not be much. It may not be much in a, a physical sense or much of monetary value. They, they may not inherit anything from that, uh, like that, but, but they'll, add, they'll inherit our attitudes, won't they? They'll inherit our attitudes. Is there any chance they will inherit our contentments? Have we put that on display for them to inherit? Are we modeling it for them? Are we putting it to use? Will they know for certain Will they know for certain, because we modeled it, because they saw it in us, will they know for certain, my God will supply my every need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we don't have to tell You that we struggle with contentment. Every day in so many ways, our lives just cry out for more, more, and more. But as we grow, as we put these principles into practice. I pray our faith will cry out for more of You. More peace, more joy, more contentment. And I ask this not only for ourselves, but for those who will inherit from us who we are. Our debts, our gains, and our attitudes. And I pray that they will be able to see the example we've left them and know for certain, my God will supply my every need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Thank You for teaching us this very important lesson. I pray we live it well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.